Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Garyelle Lutz. Garielle is a short story writer. Her new collection, Worsted, is available now. Welcome to the show, Garielle. Thank, thank you, Ben. I'm happy to be here. How is life in Pennsylvania? Oh, it's it's fine. I mean, the pandemic is raging right now. Yeah. How bad is it there? Like, I know in New York it's been really bad, but how bad is it in Pennsylvania? A newspaper article I saw yesterday said that it's starting to um, fade out a little bit, but it doesn't really seem that way to me. Yeah, it's been two crazy long years, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And how have you coped during that time? Like it's just been, I know over here it's just been insane, but yeah, in America it sounds like it's even worse. Yeah, I've had to adjust to life essentially as a shut-in. And yeah. that was difficult for me because I like to walk through crowds in the closest city, which is Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And I, I used to like taking the bus there and just wandering around, but I've had to completely, almost completely stop that. Okay. So I sometimes feel that I'm restricted to my apartment. Yeah, I think it's been like that for a lot of people, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and around here, not as many people are wearing masks or conforming to social distancing to the extent that they are in places like New York, from what I understand. So it's risky and dangerous. Every time I venture out to a supermarket, I've started doing the curbside pickup. Mm -hmm. It's just using that system to get my groceries. I read The Complete Gary Lutz last year. It's become one of my favorite short story collections. And the follow-up Worsted is fantastic. Your Focus on writing at the word and sentence level is unlike almost anyone else I've read. Could you tell us a bit more about how your love for words developed? Well, I guess I should start by saying that I'm the sort of person who sees the trees and not the forest. So as a reader and as a writer, I'm not thinking in terms of large structures. I'm thinking of the individual phrase or, or, or the, um, the sentence. And I suppose my love of words developed very slowly because as a child, I didn't really read very much and I didn't say very much. So having grown up for the most part without books, not that there weren't a few books in the, in the house, but I, I guess I was just a very introverted kid who did not feel at home anywhere. So I just retreated into myself a lot but not really in a verbal way. As far as my developing an interest in words is concerned, I think it eventually grew out of my recognition in junior high school, I think in the eighth grade, that my vocabulary was so tiny that I wasn't really understanding a lot of the things that I was supposed to be reading in school. And it was difficult to communicate simply because I didn't have many words. So I found myself in eighth grade making a kind of transformation. I just, I guess I recognized that to get along in the world, I would have to be able to communicate. I would have to be able to use words and use them correctly and pronounce them correctly. For example, as a kid, um, I guess I heard the expression by hook or by crook and I misheard that. So I started using the expression by hick or by stick. Um, I, th 
I, I had so many confusions about, about words. So I remember that, I guess it was in eighth grade, we had to read George Orwell's Animal Farm. And I read the book just over and over and over. I would read it until I reached the end, then I would just start over. And I wasn't really paying any much attention to what the book was about, but I was just starting to, I guess, fixate on individual words. So I was just trying to, I guess, adapt to the need in the world to be able to say things uh, to, to people. So I became a rereader without necessarily understanding what I was reading. And by the time I got to high school, I had developed more of an interest in writing. I, I wrote as a kid, but the things I wrote, I can recall, for example, when I was in elementary school, that I liked little tablets and I would like to fill the pages with words. But initially, uh, I was just arranging letters together randomly and then asking my parents if those letters formed a word. And then I just started writing tiny little books with index cards and memo pad paper. I don't recall what they were about, but when I was in junior high school or middle school, as it's now known, I think I eventually started writing little stories of a sort. And when I got to high school where it was more of a writing requirement, I started writing things for class that I suppose were regarded by the teachers as very solipsistic. I was just trying to tap into my imagination if there was one. And halfway through high school, a couple of English teachers began to take an interest in the things that I was writing. And I was placed into an advanced placement English class in my final year, but I dropped it after a few days because I, I just didn't feel as if I was up to the level of the other, of the other students. So the summer after I graduated from high school, after having applied to a local state college, I began reading a few books. One was about the Beat Generation. It was called The Beat Generation by Bruce Cook. And it occurred to me that almost every sentence had a word in it that it was unfamiliar with, that I'd never seen before. I had no idea what it meant. So I got a dictionary. I bought Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. I forget exactly which edition it was at the time. And I would just look up every, every word that I encountered that I did not know, that I didn't recognize. And I would write these words down in a little notebook and I took a highlighter and I would just highlight words in the dictionary. So I guess it was at that point, just about when I was going to head off to college that I realized I'd better do a lot of work to try to increase my word stock because it, it still was very, very, very small and I was still misusing many words. Then when I got to college, even though it was a college where the academic standards were not high at all, I was having trouble adapting to English classes. So I spent more and more time, again, just focusing on words. And around that time, I discovered a book, which has become very, which was very influential in my life, probably the, the book that changed my life. It's a, a usage book called Modern American Usage by Wilson Follett, who died before the book was completed. So it was completed by Jacques Barzan of Columbia University. And when I first encountered this book in a drugstore on a rack of one of those revolving racks of um, mass market size paperbacks for, <coughs> excuse me, for maybe $1.95 or something like that. 
I was just sort of entranced by it because I really couldn't understand it. The book essentially assumed that the reader was pretty well acquainted with the terminology of English grammar. So I would read the book, but I wouldn't really understand it. But I knew, or it seemed to me, that this particular book held the secret to communication, especially to written, written communication. So in college, I would dip into that book uh, and, and try to learn what I could from it. And I did fairly well in my college English classes, but I always felt that I was just pulling something over on everybody, that I was... I had somehow fashioned the simulation of a certain degree of ability with writing, but that I didn't really have the ability itself. In college, I took a, an introduction, well, the only, the only poetry writing class there was, because at the time, I thought I wanted to try to be a poet. And poems were a lot shorter than anything else. So I thought, well, I should be able to maybe make some progress with this. But in that class, sometimes the professor would claim that he could not even see me uh, in, in the classroom, that I wasn't visible to him for some reason or another. And I know that the poems that I was writing, they were called candy poems, because at, at, at that time in my life, I pretty much lived only on ch chocolate and Coca-Cola. <laughs> so I was writing these poems that I called candy poems, even though they, they had very little to do with um, candy whatsoever. But I thought I had to have a title for these things. So I've just called them candy poem number two, candy poem number seven, et cetera. And as far as I know, because I still think I have those poems somewhere, they are just utterly solipsistic. I mean, there were images in them, and um, but I have no idea what these poems meant. And at the time, I didn't even think it was all that important to be able to ensure that a poem could be understood because I think at that time, I first discovered the poems of Hart Crane. And I love those poems because of their, their language. But for the most part, I didn't really understand what they were uh, about. But I, I enjoyed them. And I thought, well, it's not really necessary to, uh, to achieve uh, readability in, in one's writing. And around the same time, well, actually, when I was in high school, I discovered William Burroughs. And... I guess the Paris Review interview with William Burroughs was a big influence on me at the time because Burroughs, if I understood him correctly, was saying that you can take a page of writing, cut it into four, rearrange the four parts, and you will come up with a completely new text. And I like that idea of essentially defeating any intent to make meaning in, in the conventional sense. So I think as a kid, I, even when I was in college, I felt that I would be un I would not be capable of expressing myself in a way that could be understood. So I was looking for ways in which other writers express themselves without really, uh, without really attaining a degree of clarity that would that a reader uh, so to ensure that the reader would know what's being what's being said. It's one of the things that I guess strikes me about your writing is your use of poetic devices like assonance and alliteration. Uh, and I think what you were saying before about, uh, you know, seeing the the forest and not the trees or the other way around, but um, the fact that, like, when you do write a piece, is it a phrase that gets you into a piece or is it a, like, or is it subject matter? Because it seems to me like it, maybe it is more at that basic word phrase level that draws you into a story. Yeah, entirely. Sometimes it might be a single word. For example, 
I might be reading a newspaper, the local newspaper, when it was still available in print form, seven days a week. And, you know, there might be an article in the business section that has a word, just a really ordinary everyday word. And it would strike me that I got to do something with that word. That word is really, I don't know, affecting me in some way. It has some kind of force, even though within the context in the newspaper article, it's just a completely banal, workaday, commonplace word. And I remember years later reading The Pleasure of the Text by Roland Bart. I think there's a phrase in there when he talks about liberating words or liberating language from ungrateful contexts. And that's the way I sort of felt when I would, again, be reading a newspaper article and a word would just stand out as if it was jumping out at me from the page, even though there was nothing unusual about the word whatsoever. It wasn't you know, like a poetic word or like what, what would have been considered a vocabulary word in, in public school. And then I would sort of stare into the word and look at the letters of which it's constituted. And I would, I would wonder what can be done with that word? What can be extruded from that word? Because it was around this time that I was also um, influenced by Gordon Lish because I'd started taking classes with him and I, I'd started discovering the writers that he was editing and the, the things he was writing himself. And I'm sure that I'm always oversimplifying his poetics of, of prose writing. But what I took away from it was that you start with a word and then you see uh, what within that word can predestine essentially another word coming after it. What can you take out of that word and carry it forward into, into another word? And at the time, that was how I began, was how I began to read. For, for instance, um, there, are, there are sentences that just stick out in my mind. For example, there's a Christine Scott sentence in a story about a mother who has a son in some kind of rehab, um, rehab facility. And the little sentence is, he lured his mute friends with smut. He lured his mute friends with smut. Sentences like that would just stand out to me, not only because all the words are monosyllabic, but when I would stare into the words, in, in that sentence, for example, the, the direct object of the verb is, is, um, uh, is friends, but it's preceded by the adjective mute. And then the uh, object of the preposition in the, in the one prepositional phrase in the sentence is smut. So I looked at the word, at the word mute and the word smut and I wondered, how did those two words, each four letters long, end up in that little sentence? Because the more I stirred, stared into those words, I saw that um, the three letters M-U-T in that sequence appear at the beginning of mute and the end of smut. And it would occur to me that in much of the, right, much of the reading that I encountered, whether it be fiction or um, creative nonfiction, uh, et cetera. I didn't really see that sort of thing going on where you could stare into a sentence and start seeing those connections or resemblance or like both visual and acoustical likenesses or similarities or correspondences. And it was that kind of writing that drew me toward it. Um, for example, there's a sentence in the Sam Lipsight book that again, just I memorized from the t first time I saw it. There's no gain in having a fellow goner watch you order all night eggs. Well, in terms of the three words, gain, goner, and eggs, I mean, the first one 
is gain, which is the subject of the of the only independent clause, um, well, the only clause altogether in a, in a sentence, and it's an inverted clause. So I remember in English classes always 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 being told, "Don't begin a sentence with there." That's such, such a lazy way to begin a sentence. But there is Sam Lipside, uh, a writer I greatly admire, uh, beginning a sentence with theirs. And then we get the subject game and then goner and then eggs. But also going on in that sentence is a, is a kind of resemblance between goner and order. Um, and then the double L's and fellow and all. And again, you can look at a lot of writing and not see those sorts of things. I remember reading, um, I think about 10 years ago, I was reading through old interviews with uh, Don DeLillo and he was talking about the very first sentence in his very first book, his novel Americana. And the sentence is, and then we came to the end of another dull and lurid year. Then we came to the, and then we came to the end of another dull and lurid year. And he was saying in the interview, in fact, I think he said the same thing in two interviews that he somehow intuitively arrived at dull and lurid, but then it occurred to him that those, those two words have so many letters, have, have uh, letters in common. Uh, not only the vowel U, but um, uh, the, uh, the L's and, um, and the D. And he was making the statement, I don't know if it was, I think it was in one of those two interviews that, you know, he would type his, his work. He wasn't using a, a word processor or a computer. And, you know, he was striking, he was pressing the keys and these words would appear, you know, on, on the sheet of paper. And he was, uh, he was uh, hyper conscious of the looks of these words, the, the shapes of them and the letters of which they are composed. And again, that's the kind of writing that I'm drawn to. In fact, I was thinking the other day, I have another sentence that this is stuck in my mind forever from an essay by Cynthia Ozick, another you know, masterly prose stylist. And she said, and I love this statement, nothing matters to me as nothing matters to me so much as a comely and muscular sentence. Nothing matters to me as so much as a comely and muscular sentence. And again, if you stare in, if you stare into that sentence, you've got the M's, it matters much and muscular. You've got the uh sound. Well, I, and also another M in me. So matters me much and muscular. Then you've got the uh sound in nothing and much and comely and muscular. And then you've got the sibilance in um, the S's and so and, and as and muscular and sentence and also the, 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 C, the C in sentence is that sort of thing as well. So what I, what I find is that I'm drawn to sentences in which there are essentially a ruling, a ruling vowel sound or uh, certain consonantal props that, that hold up the, the vowels, that sort of thing. And again, that's the kind of sentence I want to read. I don't want to read uh, like a flat sentence, or for the most part, I don't, I don't want to read a flat sentence that doesn't have all that sort of thing going on in it, but is going on in a way that doesn't really necessarily impose itself on the reader's consciousness the first time around, or even the second time around. You don't realize, oh, there is alliteration here, there is uh, assonance here. It's not showy, it's not, uh, it doesn't result in a kind of sing-song quality. So I just see that in essentially all the writers that, or almost all the writers that I admire. And it's something that I try to work toward in my own writing, but again, in a kind of intuitive way. Mm. 
Yeah, it, it definitely comes out because I, I reading your stories, it's funny because I think with short fiction, especially sometimes I read through it quite quickly and uh, then want to go into the next piece. But with your stories, I found that I had to keep reading over sentences because little things like that would pop out at me. And they'd always surprise me when I'd find them because they're just like littered through your work. They're just everywhere. All these little like Easter eggs almost. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I think another explanation of why I write the way I do is that uh, for a long time, I was really interested. I was interested in uh, one-liner comedy, um, you know, one-line jokes, that sort of thing. And I like the cadences of one-line jokes. And I thought, can I somehow adapt that to story writing so that an individual sentence could be a thing, you know, essentially unto itself. And then you put one of these things after another. And I'm, I'm reminded of um, uh, an often quoted phrase, uh, Ralph, Waldo Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson's, when he was writing to, I think it was Thomas Carlyle about his essays, about Emerson's own essays. He says something about, um, they're composed of infinitely repellent particles because I remember in American literature, uh, in, in a survey of American literature course that I took when I was undergraduate, that we had to read some, some essays by Emerson. And I was utterly baffled by them because it seemed as if one sentence had very little relation to what came after it or what came before it. As if, and then I later learned that he often uh, composed these essays by extracting sentences from his journals and just setting them out you know, next, next to each other. But as, a, as an undergraduate, I guess I was looking for some kind of through line in the way those essays were unfolding. And I, I wasn't really seeing it. it. It seemed as if they were all these self-contained sentences next to each other. And as I grew older, I realized, oh, I like that sort of thing. Uh, I'd rather not have transitional sentences between, between them. Um, I like a, a sentence to be almost a complete thing by, by itself. And then you just place one after another. But I think that's again, has to do with the way that um, I see the trees and not the, not the forest. Mm. And in terms of themes, I think often your focus, it, it can be quite funny in parts and quite sad in parts, but essentially you focus quite a lot on the real everyday shittiness of the human experience and you wrap it up in this beautiful prose. What are the themes and ideas that inspire you? Uh, I guess it's simply um, daily life. I mean, even now in the pandemic, I don't have a lot of encounters with people. But the other day I had to venture into a supermarket because the place across the highway where I'd picked up my curbside, uh, my curbside express order or whatever they call it, they sort of screwed up. So I, they didn't have some of the things that I wanted. So I thought, well, I'm going to drive across the highway to um, a supermarket of a little bit more sophistication than the Walmart store where I had, had the um, curbside pickup order. And I gathered in a little basket about 10 or 11 items. And after I'd completed choosing what I wanted, I drifted over to an express lane, a 12 items or fewer lane. And I thought, well, this will be a very routine transaction, but the person behind the register 
uh, first of all, did not make any kind of eye contact and had a kind of hostile expression on his face. Almost, uh, he had an expression of extreme alienation and contempt for the world. And not only was he, he not making any kind of fundamental eye contact, but also he was avoiding any kind of um, expression of, you know, hello, uh, that sort of thing. And then as he was ringing up my items, he was placing almost every single one of them into a separate plastic bag. These items altogether could have easily fit into two bags. But here he was placing them into seven or eight or nine bags, which was confusing me because I didn't, because the, the bags are arrayed in a little carousel that goes around and around. And I was thinking, well, how many of these bags are actually mine? How many of these bags actually have something in them? Because, I mean, there would be a little packet of, um, uh, a, uh, a little packet or envelope of, uh, of gravy. He put that in a separate bag. <laughs> and by the time I was ready, after I paid, I left the store with like eight or nine bags. And they were so light that it would be very easy for me to think, well, there's nothing in that bag. I, I, should, I should just dispose of it immediately. So I have no idea what this was, was up to, what kind of fit of peak he, he might've been in or um, what this was all about. But it's that everyday strangeness, the weirdness of, of everyday life that simply affects me a lot because I, I guess because I live alone and I don't really have a lot of encounters with people. And therefore, a single encounter, if it's weird, uh, this somehow gets amplified in, in my life to the point where I wonder what is going on here? Why, why is this happening to me? I remember one time when I was in graduate school uh, in, a, in a very small town in southeastern Ohio, I would... Uh, I had advanced from my diet of candy when I was an undergraduate uh, into um, into a diet of hamburgers, French fries, baked goods, <laughs> and, and candy. So there was a bakery in town where I usually bought brownies, but uh, I went in there one day and ordered something different. I ordered a Danish. And the woman behind the counter was a young woman. She said, uh, what, what did you say? And I said, uh, a Danish. And she said, I, I don't understand what you're saying. So then I said something like a cinnamon, a cinnamon roll. And she said, well, what, what, what is, what are you, what are you talking about? Um, I said, I would like a Danish or a cinnamon roll. And I, uh, and she said, I, I'm sorry, I have no, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I left the store completely humiliated, wondering, am I incapable of forming words that would be audible and understandable to other people. What well, turns out, I mentioned this incident to another graduate student, and he said, "I know that woman. You know, her problem is that she has hearing loss. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to uh, acknowledge it." So it turned out that it was not some kind of commentary on me as a failure to express myself, but it was just this, you know just another everyday weirdness. And my life consists a lot of a lot of things like that, and I think that influences the way I write because I do see, as you said, the shittiness of the everyday world. Uh, that it is very, very ugly out there. I mean, I do. <clears throat> I mean, I do see a lot of beauty, but for the most part, for a person like me, uh, everyday life involves humiliations and uh, disagreeable tasks. Tasks that shouldn't be disagreeable, but when I am prosecuting these tasks. Uh, they somehow get complicated with uh, just a lot of difficult things. So that's that's sort of what I write about. So the characters that I write about are pretty much undone by the humiliations of 
just trying to get through the day, trying to order food or trying to sit in a fast food place and not be overwhelmed by the weirdness. For example, um, I was sitting at a Burger King a few summers ago before, or maybe it was more like five or six years ago. And I couldn't believe what was unfolding at a nearby table because this was a Burger King that had booths along the, the, um, the walls, but then tables in the center. There was a woman at Burger King who was cutting a man's hair at one of the tables in the center of the, um, the, the fast food place. She had, she had draped over him the kind of sheet that would be draped over a client in a, in a salon. And she had also inserted into his, um, into his hair those little uh, aluminum foil tie. I don't know what they're <laughs> called, but uh, so this was all going on in this Burger King. Well, I'm sitting there thinking, what, what is this? And nobody behind the counter was acknowledging this or, or saying anything about it. But then eventually uh, a, uh, a manager or an assistant manager materialized and uh, approached these people and said, please, please don't do that here. And that's something that's so weird that I, wanna, I wouldn't even put that in a story because who would think that something like that could actually take, take place in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a fast food place? So I guess my life involves a lot of witnessing, even though I live in a small town, I just witness so much strangeness and, and weirdness. And that sort of seeps into your life and determines your, or influences your view of the, of the world. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of weirdness out there. Um, <laughs> Worsted came out last year and I guess the title's referencing your earlier stories in the worst way, but a lot of these were re reworked stories. Is that right? Yeah, well, um, yeah, just about everything in Worsted existed in very rough draft form when I was writing my first book, because I had a deadline for my first book. I was writing a lot of pieces or starting a lot of pieces, and I thought there's no way I will ever be able to finish all of these. So I, um, I had essentially, I, I just, you know, I had printouts of these things, and I put them into boxes and forgot about them, because uh, this would have been in the early 1990s. I put them in boxes. And then when I eventually moved to another apartment house, I sealed the boxes. And it wasn't until like, I guess now like three summers ago or thereabouts that I actually decided to open those boxes to see what was in them. And I had forgotten that I had all this material. Uh, I vaguely remembered writing these, these drafts, but uh, I, um, I didn't realize that there was so much material in there. In fact, this actually started with, uh, in, in my uh, collected stories book, the, the, uh, the section at the back, stories late and lost, virtually all that material as well is from those early 1990s um, unfinished stories. So I had, I just didn't want to waste this because I'm such a slow writer. It takes me such a long time just to write a phrase that I feel as if I have to hold on to any scraps that I have. So I thought I got to do something with those scraps. I got to assemble them or rework them or expand them. So again, that process began with the stories toward the end of my collected stories book and then the stuff in Worsted. And in fact, uh, when I was looking through this material, there are, there are two entire stories in Worsted that are essentially composed of cuttings from two stories in my first book. I, I, I cut so much out that I realized, well, I can take the cuttings and, and pretty much build them up into a story unto itself. So again, it was just a matter of not wanting to waste stuff. 
I mean, I come from a background of, um, you know, working class where you don't, you don't casually dispose of stuff. You, you, you make do with what you have. There happened to be trash collection night. So I took out a lot of the stuff. And the weird thing is the day after trash collection, I went down to the garage and all that stuff was back there or almost all of it. So in other words, my parents had gone out to the curb, to the street, went through the stuff that I threw out and decided this stuff shouldn't be thrown out. So they brought it back. <laughs> and that's the kind of, I guess I grew up with that kind of approach that you don't throw stuff out. And again, with my writing, I thought I really shouldn't trash this. I should try to make something of it. Wow. And with the, the double meaning of the title, uh, and also, I guess you wrote this title under the name Gary L as well. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about your choice to do that? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, in terms of the title, I should mention this, that initially, uh, the, the reason why I wound up, wound up with Worsted as a title, it wasn't really supposed to echo the title of my first book, but I was just, um, you know, loitering in a dictionary, one of my favorite uh, underbridge dictionary, and I was in the W's. And I saw for the first time in my life, I didn't realize that worse could be a verb. I'd never seen it used that word with that way anywhere. And I thought, this is great because it essentially means to best somebody, to outdo somebody. Mm. And because whenever I'd heard the worst, the term worst at all, all my life, I just thought it referred to a type of fabric. So that's that's why I wanted to use that that word. And I wasn't initially thinking about how it refers back to my my, my first the time of my first book. And then as far as the name is concerned, by that point in my life, I had started using Gary O's as my first name uh, in all but legal um, circumstances. So that has essentially become my, my name, but legally my name is still Gary. So, and it had to do with um, just accepting the fact that I always felt that my gender was screwed up that, uh, I mean, from age four or five, or whenever I first became aware of gender, I knew that my gender was, uh, was a mistake. So um, during my last year of teaching, uh, bef before I retired, I just began more to express myself the way I think I should be expressing myself. I mean, I didn't change my name at school or anything, but the way I was presenting myself in terms of the clothes I was wearing, et cetera, uh, uh, indicated that I was beginning some kind of transformation. So Gary is the name I will use for any other writing I ever do at this point. So it's essentially, this, you know, has become my name. Okay. Um, in terms of, I guess, form, you've obviously stuck to short stories. Some of them are very short. I know you talked about uh, a novella at some stage, but do you have aspirations to write longer pieces? Yeah, I do, but I think I'm incapable of it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in the Collected Stories book, one of those pieces at the end had been the longest story I ever wrote up until that point. It was 10,000 words long. And then the second most, second longest was also in that section toward the end, and that was 7,000 words. So with, um, with Worsted, I thought, I'm gonna, try to, uh, I'm gonna try to see if I can write something longer than 10,000 words. And then I ended up with the title story in Worsted, which I think is 12,000 words. But I think that's as far as I can take it. And again, virtually everything in there is from, you know, from fragments of things I wrote long ago. So I don't think I'm a person who could write a novella and certainly not a novel. I wish I could, but even as a reader, I generally prefer short stories or novels that are essentially not conforming to what's expected 
of a, of a conventional novel. In other words, a, a novel that might be composed of fragmentary units, that sort of thing. Hmm. And what are you currently working on? Well, uh, and this goes back to stuff that I found in my, in my closet. I, I, I discovered, or it occurred to me, that even though you know people would say, do you keep a journal? And I would always, always say no, because I, I don't. But I actually was. But, and it's a very extensive journal. I mean, I don't know what the word count would be, but it would be well over a million words, I would think, um, because I've been extracting things from it. And so far I've typed up, I guess, 210,000 words. The thing is, again, I never really thought I was keeping a journal, but what would happen frequently when I would come home from work, this goes back to when I first got, when I, when I got my first job, I would come home with, um, from work and just feel totally, um, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say zoned out, but I guess overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by the day. So I would often take a piece of paper, put it in my typewriter and just start typing stuff. And usually it would just be things that I recall from the day, weird, weird things, that sort of thing. But I didn't gather these anywhere. I would eventually they would wind up on the floor. And when a lot of them would be on the floor, I would throw them into a box and I would forget about them. But when I discovered these in these boxes, I realized, well, I've actually kept a pretty good record of my life during the 1980s. And along with that, when I was in graduate, when I was in graduate school, and of course, this was before the age of the internet. This was in the late 1970s and early 80s. I was writing extremely long letters to a friend in uh, Philadelphia or suburban Philadelphia, really. And uh, we had sort of had a falling out or we drifted apart. And a few years ago, he re-entered my life. And he said, you know, I have all these letters uh, of yours. Do you want to see them? So he sent them to me. And I mean, there was one letter that was, I think it was 32 single-spaced pages Long, wow. you know, type because these are all type. And I was reading through these and I thought I should do something with this as well. So I've started this project, which is just, uh, essentially excerpts from journals and letters because it's a kind of memoir, a very long memoir. So that's really what I've been, that's the primary thing I've been working on. And again, I was struck by how, how detailed these letters were, how I was writing about so many things that were going on, but so I'm extracting the parts that are really, really weird or strange or peculiar. So um, there are not details in there about going to class, that that sort of thing. It's it's all it's all strange, strange stuff. And then the other thing that I've been preoccupied with is that uh, it looks as if there's going to be a tr German translation of my first book, and the translation has been completed. But the translator had a lot of questions about um, about particular words, phrases, etc. But the, trans the translator, uh, Christoph uh, Fricker, who um, is British, I, I think he's British. He, well, he lives in the UK. He's a translator. Uh, he has a, a doctorate from Oxford, and he his questions are just have been amazing. Uh, how, I, I, I don't know if anybody has ever read my first book as closely as he has. And so responding to his questions was um, thrilling because it, it made me, it made me um, uh, realize how much trouble some of these phrases could have pre presented to, uh, to <laughs> readers. So that's, that's the other project that I'm sort of involved with. 
It's interesting you say that because I I remember reading in the preface to uh, The Complete Gary Lutz that Brian Evanson was saying that you were basically the only untranslatable person on the planet. Yeah, and um, I mean, I respect Brian Evanson a great deal. He's He's just an extraordinary writer. And I... I had wondered about, well, I mean, my 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 books have uh, haven't really reached much of a much of a readership. It's a very small readership, so I didn't really expect that at any point anybody would translate it or think it could be, uh, th- or, or think it would be worth translating. But I, I I love the French language. I wish I had studied that in school. I, I tried to learn it on my own. I had no uh, success with it, but I thought that French would be the one language I would I would most want to be translated in. And it's essentially French people who told me that, no, there's, this can't be translated. And essentially what they were saying that there were two things that defeated any possibility of translation. The first one was simply the fact that, you know, French and um, Spanish, et cetera, they're gendered languages. And how can you translate stories in which the writer has, has gone out of the way to uh, suppress any um, not in all stories, but in quite a few of the stories, has tried to suppress any trace of gender in the uh, in the characters. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was that, uh, if I understand them correctly, there were certain syntactic operations that I was resorting to that might not be uh, translatable. Although uh, one person said, well, there might be a way to approximate that kind of syntactic maneuver but it wouldn't be exactly what you're doing and therefore it wouldn't be an accurate translation. So after that, and after what Brian wrote, I thought, yeah, that I agree totally. There's no way that this stuff could be, uh, could be translated. So I was surprised when I was approached by um, an agent in Germany, uh, his name is Martin, Martin Brinkman, who said, uh, this, uh, I want this book to be, <coughs> he wanted to see that that book would be translated into, into German. Let's move on to your gateway books. Were there some books that opened up the world of literature for you? Oh, well, when I was in high school, and again, as I said before, I wasn't much of a reader. I mean, I had to read things for school, but that was about it. But in those days, at least in the city where I was living, uh, variety stores, five and five and dime stores, five and ten stores, as they were known in those days, often had a little section where they had coverless paperback books. I forget exactly how coverless paperback books end up in these types of stores, but essentially these are books that had uh, had been attempted to be sold in bookstores, et cetera, but didn't sell. And somehow the cover was ripped off so the cover could be returned to the publisher to get a certain kind of discount or return or, or I don't know. So these variety stores would sell these coverless paperbacks really cheap, like 10 cents or three for a quarter, that sort of thing. So I would end up buying books there because they were so inexpensive. And there were two that kind of um, really baffled me. Uh, The first one was uh, City Life by Donald Barthelme. And, you know, I was flipping through the book in the variety store and I would see that, you know, some of these stories had um, graphic elements in them and some of these had really short sentences. So that was the first stage in, in, in terms of gateway. The second one would have been the discovery of that book that I mentioned earlier uh, modern American Usage by Wilson Fogg. And as I said before, I didn't really understand much of what was going on there, but I, I had the sense that this book is the book to learn to learn from. This, this guy knows what he's talking about. This is like an ultimate guide to how to, how to communicate. 
And then I guess the next stage in terms of gateway, when I was in grad school, I happened upon Barry Hanna's very short novel, Ray, in a section of the library where they, had, where they shelved new books, books that just came in. I was intrigued by the length of it. I picked it up and I was looking into it and I thought, wow, I have no idea what this book is about. This, this book is all over the place, all these little short segments. But that was another book that made me realize there's something that can be achieved that's a lot different from the sorts of things that were offered to me as examples of exemplary, uh, of, of, of the kinds of writing to, to emulate. Barry Hanna's work was just a kind of um, rough and tumble, or seemingly rough and tumble. But when you, when you examine it, for example, um, a sentence of his that stuck in my mind is from his book, Yonder Stands Your Orphan. And it's, um, it's a sentence that begins with both of the, uh, well, it's about two men. Um, both stood under headaches. And then the sentence goes on. And I realized that is so strange. Both stood under headaches. And that was an example of something that I've encountered a lot that you can play around with prepositions and you can really give an uncanny quality to uh, a sentence by choosing a preposition that doesn't really seem to belong there, but actually expresses something really vividly. Both stood under headaches. Uh, I love that. In fact, there's a Jan, John, John Ashbery line, first line of a poem that goes, a man walks at a city. A man walks at a city? I mean, that sort of thing, again, just undoes, uh, undoes me. Let's move on to your currently reading books and books you're looking forward to this year. In the past few months, well, about two months ago, I learned of a British writer named Gwendolyn Riley. I'd never heard of her before. I saw a fairly brief review of her most recent book in the London Review of Books. And as I was reading the reviews, I didn't initially think that Gwendolyn Riley might be a writer that um, I would necessarily want to read. But then I, after reading that, that review, uh, something stuck with me somehow. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order one of her books. So the, the first book I ordered was called First Love. And when I read it, I was just completely knocked out by it. And I had a kind of peculiar reaction to it because I, I'm, uh, one of my favorite rock bands is the Smiths. And as I was reading through First Love, I just had this weird sense that the narrator in First Love sounds like one of the, sounds like a person in a Smith song who has grown up and reached her, you know, made it through, made it through adolescence, made it into early adulthood and became an adult. So I was just completely knocked out by the book. So I decided that I was going to read all of her stuff. She has six books out thus far. First novel is called Cold Water. The second one's called Sick Notes. Third one is Joshua Spasky. Uh, Spasky. Uh, the fourth one is uh, Opposed Positions. Then First Love. And the newest one is My Phantoms. So I've been reading through all of her stuff. I finished My Phantoms, her most recent book, just about a week or so ago. And I'm just completely knocked out. I, I, I've never encountered a writer quite like her. and it's unusual for me because she doesn't, she's not really what I would call um, a sentence artist in the way that, you know, Christine Scott is or, you know, Sam Lipside, because her, her style in her most recent books is kind of gorgeously plain. There's a kind of eloquent flatness to it. I mean, in her first books, there was a lot of lyricism, a lot of description of puddles and sidewalks, uh, windows, things like that. 
but her last two books, First Love and and um, My Phantoms, are very, very spare, but just completely emotional knockouts. I I haven't felt that way after reading a book in a, in a, in a long time. So I'm, I'm really fascinated with, with her work, and I can't wait to see what she does next, because in her novels, for the most part, she's writing, her narrators are very, very similar to, to one another and have this, the same set of parents. The, um, she writes, the, the narrator in all, almost all these books writes about the, uh, the mother and, and the father. And the most recent book is all, almost all about the relationship with the, the narrator's relationship with the mother. So it's as if the, the writer is sticking with the same material, but deepening it further with each book. Well, initially, in the first few books, the style was not spare. It's, it's rather lyrical. Uh, and there's a lot of description of things like puddles and sidewalks and windows. But in her two most recent books, she has left that entirely. Uh, the sentences are very, very spare. There isn't that much physical description of anything. And it's, uh, it's an even more affecting uh, virtuosic type of, type of writing. And I don't know what she's going. I, I'm really looking forward to what she does next because she's working with the same material in virtually all of these books, but deepening it from book to book. So that in this most recent book, it seems to me like the, the, maybe the most definitive statement of what she uh, wants to say about, what the narrator wants to say about relationships with parents. So yeah, I'm just utterly bowled over. Uh, reading those books was it's, uh, one of the most significant experiences in my reading life in a long time. I've also been rereading uh, an essay collection by Greg Gerke called See What I See. And Greg Gerke is a, is a critic or, uh, of um, film and, and of books, but writes in a, uh, essays of sensuous appreciation of the writers and the filmmakers that he's, that he's writing about. So I've been rereading that. And I'm, right now I'm reading uh, the, most, the more recent biography of Dion Arbus, it's a very long biography, so I'm loving that. And recently I read the first book of Colette's that I've ever read. And Colette turned out to be a lot different from what I expect of her work. It's a book called The Pure and the Impure. I guess it was written in the early 1930s. And it's, uh, I don't even know if it's actually fiction. It seems to be nonfiction, but it's essentially about the, uh, the sexual underworld um, in her recollection of it. In terms of uh, gender non-conforming people, uh, prostitutes, um, homosexuals, lesbians, etc. It's just what what ultimately struck me the most about that book is that it sounded many many of the sentences sound as if they could have been written a decade ago or yesterday. There's such a fresh contemporary feel to it, even though it was written in 1932. And what struck me in particular because I I learned of this book through an interview with. Um, um, with Elizabeth Hardwick. She mentioned it as an influence on her. So I thought I definitely want to read this, this book. And it occurred to me when I was reading the pure, the pure and the Impure that there are entire sentences, entire paragraphs that almost seem as if they could be transported into sleepless nights. They had that same kind of quality. Uh, and obviously I'm reading this in translation. But again, it just feels very, very contemporary. Just, uh, just an, uh, another uh, utter knockout of a book. So those are the things I've, I've been reading uh, recently. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Gary Earl's Top 10. Hi, I'm Rosemary Johnston, 
This episode is sponsored by my novella, Source. It is about Kate and her teenage daughter, who returned to Ireland to sort through what is left of the family farm. But in doing so, Kate is brought to all the reasons she left many years ago. She can find no attachment to the objects of her past until she comes across her father's dictionary. Can words be the way for her to unlock the past? Can they help pave the way towards reconciliation? Can they help us understand ourselves? Source is a book about beginnings and homeland and the words that accompany us on our journey. It is available now, everywhere. If you're in the UK and you would like a free copy of Rosemary's book, please PM me or email me and we'll send you a copy. Now it's time for Gariel's Top 10. Okay, now I should preface this by saying my top 10, what I mean by this is books that have had the most influence on me uh, as a writer. Um, Books that I turn to essentially for instruction. The first one is Voyage in the Dark by Jean Rhys. The second one is a short story collection, a second short story collection by Christine Scott called A Day, A Night, Another Day, Summer. The third one is a collection of pieces by S.J. Perelman. Uh, it's, it's available under two titles. One of them is a modern library edition called The Best of S.J. Perelman, but it was also published under the title Crazy Like a Fox. The next one is a collection of nonfiction pieces by Ma Brennan called The Long-Winded Lady. And then um, the collected works of Whitney Balliot it's called Collected Works, A Journal in Jazz, 1954 to, 19, uh, 1954 to 2001. Number six is Elizabeth Hardwick's Sleepless Nights. Number seven is the book I mentioned a few times already, Wilson Follett's Modern American Usage. Number eight is Sam Lipsight's Venus Drive. Number nine is Files on Parade by John O'Hara. And the last one is by Janet Malcolm. It's called 41 False Starts. Very interesting titles. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, Let's wrap it up. But before we do, can you tell us where we can go buy your wonderful books and where people can get in touch with you? Oh, uh, I guess the place to buy the books would be either on Amazon or, well, directly from the publishers. Two, uh, two of my books, or actually three of my books, are available through Calamari Press. So you could go to the Calamari Press website. The book Worsted was published by a small press called Short Flight Long Drive Books, which is like a subsidiary of an online site called Hobart. So Hobart is a literary magazine. So if you went to the Hobart, or if you typed in Hobart Literary, you would find that that way. For the Collected Stories book, you could go to the Tyrant Books website. And I guess those would be the places to look other than Amazon. Mm-hmm. And if people want to reach out to you and get in touch, how can they do that? Oh, I guess the easiest way. I'm on Twitter now and just under the name Gary L. Litz. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, would be, uh, that would be the easiest way because you could direct message me through that. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. I really, uh, I really enjoyed this. 
Thanks once again to Gary L. Lutz. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. We'll be back for your next episode next week.